If you owned a video game, one that you could play with your friends whenever you wanted, why would you watch someone else do it and pay for the privilege? Over the last 10 years, high-speed internet has made it possible to watch somebody play any sort of game anywhere in the world. But it's not just for fun. On sites like YouTube and Twitch, streamers have been able to make a living, some a fortune, which they've shared with charities, from playing games. Welcome to episode two of Gaming for Good. I'm Will Bond, podcaster, gamer, and occasional Jedi. Obviously, things have changed since our last episode, but as the world has gone into lockdown, worlds of gaming and streaming have opened up. For us, it's been 24-7 nonstop. Every type of live stream that you could think of, music concerts, Q&As, telethons, gaming tournaments, gaming marathons, people reading movie scripts, whatever you can imagine. Communities have been fundraising for the COVID-19 response fund powered by the United Nations Foundation. Feeding America has seen a good amount of uptick and everybody wants to do something for somebody. It's phenomenal. The community is really, really activating. From salesforce.org, this is Gaming for Good. We're all painfully aware that the fight against the coronavirus has touched all aspects of our lives. Massive real-world fundraisers like the London Marathon have been cancelled, causing a huge cut in income, and charities have had to adapt quickly. A lot of charities have obviously been forced to make quick decisions and have turned to live streaming maybe quicker than they would have wanted to, but I think in the end that's kind of a positive because they'll come out with understanding it better. Michael Vassiman, CEO and founder of Tiltify, the online platform that helps charities engage with their donors, has seen a huge increase in uptake. There's no social distancing on the internet. Obviously, it's the way that you connect with people. And we've also seen a general increase in obviously fundraising for COVID-related initiatives and initiatives that are also tangentially related to COVID. So, you know, things that have to be kept in mind while COVID is happening that, you know, services that still need to function for emergencies or other medical needs that may have been somewhat forgotten because of COVID. So, yeah, we've seen a huge, huge, huge increase. Kirsten Carlisle is the Philanthropy and Partner Experiences Director at Child's Play. In episode one, she told us about how it developed from delivering toys to children in a single hospital to a network which now supplies nearly 200 hospitals around the world. Like many others, they're trying to figure out how to operate during the pandemic. We're canceling all these fundraisers, and a lot of us have been through the recession of eight and nine when we fundraised in it, and we know that it's going to slow down and not sure what's going to happen. So I'm a little nervous, like child's play. We haven't really talked about the plan or what it will look like. I don't know what it has in store for us. Child's play have just distributed their first quarter grants and have adopted a strategy of maintaining communication with their donors on a personal level. For them, it's a key issue. Fundraising aside, how do you keep your relationship strong and work on the stewardship of relationships, because that will get you through this, right? It might mean our numbers are down this year, or our funds are down this year, but in the years to come after, like you don't want to exclude people because they're having a hard time of your mission or your information or what you're doing. You want them to feel just as included for all the years of support. And then you say, 
You might not be able to make a gift this year, and that's okay. Share our message, tell a friend, support us through taking our social media and resharing that because it keeps our message alive. And so sometimes our mission is more important than the funds we're raising at this point in time with the way that the world is. The current pandemic has opened the doors of the virtual world to millions who either weren't aware of it or had no interest in it. Of course, things have changed. We meet now not in pubs, cafes or on street corners, but on Zoom. We can't camp out at Glastonbury or Burning Man, but we can watch our favourite artists perform in their front rooms. And sports stadia may have closed, but virtual arenas are welcoming the crowds. You should see my World of Warcraft guild on a Friday night. Virtual events are no longer just the preserve of a few gamers hooking up their monitors for a LAN party anymore. In April, artist Travis Scott performed a concert in Fortnite, a massive multiplayer survival game that transformed into a party island, the game world exploding around him as his huge avatar stomped around rattling off the hits. Have a guess at the size of the audience. 100,000? Million? No, it was watched online by over 12 million people. Max Schramp works with Open Pit, who hosts virtual concerts in Minecraft, a virtual sandbox game made up of blocks that, like Lego, can be turned into pretty much anything you set your mind to. Anyone who's been to like a real-life concert has had that feeling of being in a crowd and you're all sort of like experiencing the same thing at once. And that totally translates to virtual concerts. And just because an event is online doesn't mean the stages pop up overnight. Max's team worked with Minecraft's virtual toolbox to create the most authentic experience they could for the concert goers. We like actually built like where the queue is outside and the fact that the servers were kind of laggy at the beginning made everyone feel like they were actually lined up outside. So we always try to have like a pathway that sort of like leads you through the world to give you that sort of sense of arrival when you come to the stage areas. And it wasn't just about replicating the real world gig atmosphere inside the game. Open Pit wanted to respond quickly and positively to the coronavirus. One of their recent gigs raised money for Good360, which is helping provide healthcare workers with protective equipment. To raise the money, they created a number of in-game incentives. We have the option to just donate directly, and then we also have VIP passes in Minecraft. So that also comes over to Discord as well, so like you're able to chat directly like with the artists who are playing the event if you pay this like $5 minimum fee, which is like pretty cheap. That also gives you access to like exclusive merch in-game that we've designed. So like we make special shirts for each event and like cool hats and all this other stuff you can find. We know what you might be thinking. Why are you telling us about concerts in Minecraft and giant artists in the middle of an online island? The thing is, with enough dedication, and a willingness to learn from industrious gamers and developers, you could host events like Open Pit, or create downloadable content for games that link players directly to your campaigns. As we've heard before, gaming links players with each other. Community is key. Just ask Brian Kapek, a research scientist for the Institute for Protein Design at the University of Washington. This project isn't raising money, but it highlights the good gamers can do, and the power of community. 
the premise of Fold It is that a citizen scientist, even without a background in biochemistry or protein folding, can contribute new ideas to protein folding and can apply some 3D spatial reasoning and intuition about the protein folding problem. Like a charity crowdfunding to reach its targets, Foldit allows gamers to structure proteins in three dimensions on their screens, helping scientists understand the way they work and how they affect the human body. The game has been around since 2008, and in that time, Foldit players have predicted the structure of a viral protein related to HIV research. And in February 2020, the team turned their attention to COVID-19 and developed puzzles that could help design a protein to fight the virus. So when you play the Foldit coronavirus challenge, you are directly designing drug molecules that could be used to treat COVID-19. And we will take the most promising ideas from Foldit players and actually test them in the lab. This is the real deal. This is how drugs are discovered. This is the very first step of the drug discovery process. So of course, there's a lot of testing that has to happen after Foldit players design a drug. Foldit players really are at the forefront of protein research when it comes to this kind of drug development. Foldit demonstrates that you don't need a multi-million dollar budget or a superstar performer to draw an audience. Just a strong vision and a great idea that can be communicated. Find out more at www.fold.it. We've already heard from Michael Wasserman, CEO and founder of Tiltify, the online platform that helps charities engage with their donors. Michael has condensed his years of experience as a charity consultant into the Tiltify platform, and for many organizations, he's been the link between a charity and the gaming world. But Michael had to start somewhere, and for him, it began when an open-minded client offered him the opportunity to try something new. So we decided to do a video game tournament for charity with a bunch of celebrities with Zac Efron, Snoop Dogg, Michael Strahan, a bunch of people. And that became a really big event, which spawned a lot of other charitable organizations reaching out, wanting to do similar things in the space, which took me to meeting the team at Twitch. And I had this idea that as I saw what was happening there with live streams and the ability for anybody to go and have their own live stream, it occurred to me that these were telethons and started thinking about how somebody could build a charity platform that really catered to that technology that was interactive. And through developing Tiltify, Michael was able to address an issue that would come up time and time again. The number one question that would always come up is, how do I get younger donors? How do I get younger fundraisers? So I knew that that was something that people were looking for and an issue. And as we started to speak to people about the creation of Tiltify, most of the people we were speaking to were, you know, in their early 20s at the time, but, you know, some in their late 20s, early 30s. And we realized that there was a technology gap that was growing and going to grow between the technology that charities were utilizing to fundraise and the way that people under 40 interacted online with people. At Tiltify, they began to understand why gamers like to watch the exploits of their peers on streaming services like Twitch. 
and how they could turn that excitement into donations. One of the first things we did is we realized that people would get stuck between launching their campaign and reaching their goal. They would sort of get stuck in that weird middle area where there was nothing exciting necessarily happening because people are excited when you start and they're excited when you're about to cross the finish line. So we said, well, what if there were more finish lines? And we created milestones, which was the idea that you can create essentially sub goals, which would trigger different entertainment, right? So, you know, if your goal was 10,000, you'd say, okay, my goal is 10,000, but at 2,000, I'm going to upload old baby pictures or at 4,000, I'll color my hair or at 10,000, I'll eat hot wings or shave my head. Why? Because there's a $500 donation, donation. from oh Mr. Horrible. my yeah. God. In episode one, we spoke to the team behind Desert Bus for Hope, one of the longest running charity live streams on the internet. They were able to generate donations by offering rewards and setting milestones that their devoted fan base were all too happy to help them achieve. Well, thank you very much, friend, for the $500 donation. That is an absurd donation. That's so That's generous. so amazing. That's thank so you. Tiltify enables charity fundraisers, large and small, to replicate that success. The next feature we created was something called rewards, which we realized that all donation pages more or less had suggested donation amounts. And we realized that, again, we wanted to put that in the hands of the fundraisers. What color do you want me to dye my hair? What song do you want me to play? What ingredient do you want me to put into this smoothie I'm going to have to drink when I get to $10,000? And all of these added up to engagements in addition to all of the on-screen things that we did, like being able to see names pop up when people donate, being able to have overlays and donation alerts that can be customized. It was all about getting people involved and making it feel like when people donated, it wasn't just like dropping off money in a mailbox. It was an interactive experience. Hey, thanks for the thumbs up, Curtis404. Simon Sound, new subscriber. Thank you very much. When Tiltify ran the numbers, they compared the money raised by offline fundraising to live online donations. And the results were astounding. What I find staggering about it is not only all the people that are engaging, which is amazing, and especially people under 40 that are really making this sort of market of fundraising and social fundraising huge, but how fast they're raising money. So when people would have a fundraiser, it would take them 37 times longer to raise the same amount of money than when somebody went live, which we literally checked that number like 10 times. You know, it used to be, okay, I'm doing a, a run walk, I'm going to raise for a couple months. Whereas this is like this new acute fundraising where people are saying, all right, I'm going to go do this today and I'm going to raise you know, thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions today and just go out and do it. And it's amazing to watch. This is about your peers, a community being recognized for donating and how the thrill of the occasion drives people to donate even more. So the example I use all the time is that when we used to throw galas and black tie events and dinners, the most exciting part was always the live auction. It was that opportunity for people to raise their hand and be the hero and bid and donate, and everybody would know that that person was the person that donated. 
that's kind of the same mentality you get from a live stream fundraiser is that everybody's there. So everyone is seeing the names of people that donate, especially when someone donates, you know, a little bit more than other people. You know, it depends on the type of fundraiser. But if it's a smaller one, if someone donates $100, it's a big deal. It's a huge one. Someone donates 1000 or 10000 And that person becomes a hero in chat. Everybody knows it. Everybody sees it. Your name pops up on the screen. The fundraiser is seeing that coming in in real time. He's calling your name out. He's reading your comment. They're putting hearts in chat for you. You see that like everybody's in it together. And that really gives this sort of amazing like crowd mentality to really get to that goal together. The world is facing an emergency on a scale many of us will never have seen before. But it will pass, and the world will go through the slow process of healing. The advice our guests have given is useful both now and in that future we can't quite see yet. So the best thing we can do right now is keep looking ahead, tool up, and grab some friends to beat the boss level. Speaking of which... Players who has entered the game. I'd like to introduce my co-presenter and virtual roving reporter, Shay Thompson. You may recognize her as the presenter for McLaren, BAFTA, and Xbox, and the founder of Level Up Link Up. Shay caught up with Ali Sweetman from Twitch to hear how she's helping newcomers to the platform. Thanks, Will. Starting in 2011, the global phenomenon that we know today as Twitch is now synonymous with creating and sharing live content online. Twitch is the biggest live streaming platform and saw the hours watched increase 50% between March and April. It's now up to 1.6 billion hours watched per month. Nonprofits coming to this space or non-endemic companies that haven't really dived into influencer marketing should really struggle to understand the idea of influencer fundraising and how it's different and why authenticity and the relationship with the influencer is more important than the relationship with the donor. Most people, they came to me because they read an article, so-and-so big streamer raised X number of dollars and I won in on that. Usually my first response is go spend two hours on Twitch. Go create an account, just go watch Twitch, just go spend two hours. And the difference between a nonprofit being pretty successful and not is typically whether or not they get Twitch and get the idea of connecting with an entertainer in this way. Streaming and fundraising can be a highly rewarding experience for everybody involved. It's a new space that has seen a lot of innovation in a short space of time. As Michael from Tiltify well knows, despite it having a spotlight at the moment, so much of it is still largely misunderstood by non-endemic companies. I'd say probably the biggest barrier is their own trepidation of getting involved in something new. It can be daunting to look at from the outside, as is a lot of new technology. When you don't fully understand it, it, it certainly can seem overwhelming and confusing. And I think sometimes charities let looking at that get the better of them a little bit and hesitate for a long time, sometimes years, before getting involved. So I would say, you know, you kind of sometimes have to step in. We've got a three billion, or I think it's now three and a half billion people globally that operate on social platforms. Live streaming is huge. And it's definitely something that you're gonna wanna get into eventually. You might as well start now. 
In traditional fundraising campaigns, the average age of a donor has skewed older. It's been challenging to tap into a younger audience. As we've said, the current world emergency has introduced many people to the digital world who had no interest in it before. Charities can capitalise on this, but to make the most of it, they need to learn and adapt to recent developments like live streaming. They don't understand the technology and, you know, they're sort of more traditionalists as fundraising is concerned, you know, using your standard page for your run walks and different things. And there's a lot of data that will tell you that your average donor is 60 years old. And one of the things I challenge charities on with that statistic is, is that your average donor or fundraiser as a byproduct of who really wants to get involved or as a byproduct of the messaging and technology that you've put out there? So there are challenges, but also huge benefits and opportunities available to charities in the gaming and streaming world. And there's a community of people out there who can help. People like Ali from Twitch. Twitch is a platform where folks come together to create content. We like to look at it as multiplayer entertainment. So the chat and the viewers are part of the entertainment along with the content creator, influencers, or the streamer making the content. And my role at Twitch is focused around supporting the community's philanthropy efforts through fundraising or awareness and helping guide nonprofits that come to the community and say, I want to raise money in the Twitch community and creators who are like, I would like to fundraise, but I don't know where to start. It's not lost to me that this show is called Gaming for Good, but platforms like Twitch are clued into the fact that not everyone on their site uses gaming as a means to build an audience. They've been able to provide streamers with the necessary tools to go beyond gaming and tap into communities that you might not have expected to reach. Here's Ali again. We have people who blacksmith, do drag, paint. I saw someone making armor the other day, like chainmail, armor, cooking. And I'm like, your program isn't centered around gaming. Your program is centered around the influencers that are creating the content. An influencer? Okay, you'll have heard the term, but you might not have bothered to wonder what one is. Maybe you've seen a celebrity on a TV game show and when they've been labeled influencer, reach for the remote. But like them or not, they're important. An opinion expressed by an influencer can make or break a product or your charity campaign. As an example, Esports player and streamer Ninja became a household name and gained immense popularity streaming Fortnite with the likes of Travis Scott and Drake. He was the first esports player ever to be featured on ESPN magazine, and if that wasn't enough, at one point he was making half a million dollars without having to leave the house. Even my mum's heard of Ninja, and often asked why my career isn't at the same level as his. Thanks, Ninja. Think back to the early days of Twitter and Facebook. Passing fads? Certainly not. Ali from Twitch reckons today's equivalent is livestream fundraising. Nonprofits that were looking at this space before, thinking it wasn't viable, are now kicking themselves, saying, I wish I had already started this. Nonprofits who had previously been like, this is not a place we're going to invest time and energy to, or are now emailing me and saying, please give us these resources. We need to get started ASAP. And if I could tell anybody listening right now, one of the most important things is don't wait for the next pandemic or crisis 
to innovate your fundraising. The Willow Foundation is at the beginning of their journey into online fundraising. They run special days which help realize the dreams of those with life-threatening illnesses by providing experiences for them, from theater trips to premiership football matches. This is Stephen from the Willow Foundation. We have had a few people fundraise online gaming with us. I mean, we're quite a small charity and it's not an area that we've explored really fully yet. Often it's people spontaneously approaching us saying, you know, I'm going to do a marathon playing Donkey Kong or whatever. (laughs) But in my experience at Willow and also at previous charities like the MS Trust, we've been incredibly surprised by how much potential there is in this kind of fundraising activity. I think often smaller charities lack the resources to really make the most or leverage this kind of activity. For smaller organisations with maybe a fundraising team of three or four people, it can be quite hard to understand the sector and understand how you can promote your organisation to people who might be willing to do this kind of fundraising. For Willow and the other small organisations, we go back again to the advice you can get from people like Michael Wasserman from Tiltify. They work with charities and non-profits, large and small, pointing them to the fundraising entry points that are available. So if I was a smaller charity just starting out, there's a couple routes that are available. So one, we've seen just general benefits from people being available on Tiltify we get sort of what we refer to as drive-by traffic. So since Tiltify is kind of a hybrid between a classic peer-to-peer site where organizations set up their peer-to-peer fundraisers and sort of that crowdfunding model where it's a place that people come looking for charities to fundraise, you know, A, we always tell charities, make yourself available. Take that first step, be available in the area. The second thing we tell them is to put that information on your platform where you talk about your fundraising opportunities. Some charities will do that kind of stuff from the first perspective of set up, but not have it known on their own website where they may get people coming to check on things, that that's something that can be done. So to sum up, do your research, immerse yourself in those communities, gather a good understanding of the platforms and shout about it within your own networks. It's statistically improbable that you don't have a lot of current followers on your social channels or in your internal lists that you reach out to that are already utilizing these platforms. So step one, I always say to organizations is one, once you build your presence on Tiltify to make it accessible, go out to your regular channels and let them know. You don't have to reinvent the metaphorical social marketing wheel here. You can have the desired impact by utilizing what's already available to you. The other big piece of advice I give to charities is sometimes it makes sense to start a new type of program, but sometimes it makes sense to just expand popular programs that you have to being more inclusive to utilizing these methods. To get the most of opportunities offered by organizations like Tiltify and Twitch, there are things you can do yourself. Here are a couple from Ali and first from Michael. 
it is really important to understand the kind of tools that people who will live stream on your behalf should have both for the sake of the charity and for the sake of their fundraising. So you now have the opportunity to connect with people that have different audiences and those audiences may be very passionate about what they have to say and that's why they follow them. So arming them with simple fact sheets about your charity, you really want to have a bullet point information, you want to talk about what those impact points are, you know, what their money is doing, but also giving them videos, giving them access to the proper logos that you want. So impact statements are super, super huge. One of my favorite ones is by Rise Above the Disorder, and their impact statement is, every $35 raised, Rise Above the Disorder is able to provide a therapy session to someone in need. You know the price point, you know what it can do, you know who it targets, kind of tells you everything you need to know. And as an influencer who is running production, reading chat, maybe playing a game or doing artwork, having bite-sized pieces of information to choose from, to share with my community, is super important. So you've hooked up with Tiltify and Twitch. You've provided a fact sheet and an impact statement that enables potential streamers to fundraise on your behalf. You've accepted that influencers are a key to this new world, and you're ready to live stream. Off you go. Okay, there are just a few more things you need to know. We've all sat through terrible movies or had long conversations with people who seem unable to say anything interesting. Let's make sure your live stream is engaging enough to find an audience. Those familiar with Dara O'Brien's Go Eat Bit TV show may recognise our next guest. The concept for Go Eat Bit began at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, where he and Dara had the idea to get drunk and play video games with their comedian pals. They threw in some sketches and developed punishments for the loser, and thus Go 8-Bit was born. I'm of course talking about Steve McNeil. He's also featured on War Child charity streams and has broadcasted live on his own Twitch channel for four years now, so it's safe to say this is something he enjoys and knows a lot about. I think the spirit of doing something because you decided you would enjoy doing it and you thought people might enjoy it is a better thing than trying to work out what people might want. So making something you believe in and you think it's going to be fun and seeing the fun in that and that being the reason you do it is probably more likely to bear fruit than cynically trying to guess what they, in inverted commas, want, which is often a very quick hiding to nothing. In the rapidly evolving space of live streaming, you have to be malleable with your approach. Having the balance right and being able to adapt to different audiences is paramount to your success. You need to find the ways that you can inject humour and personality and energy and enthusiasm and joy into it that is contextually appropriate for the thing you're doing it in. Otherwise, you risk doing something which has the opposite effect. And that all sounds very, very grand for what I'm essentially saying is me playing games on a chair in my house while people stare at it. I think that's at the heart of the way you have to approach those different things if you want them to feel authentic and good, not jarring and bad. There's a common belief that you have to invest a lot of money in streaming equipment in order to connect with your audience or heighten the content's quality. It certainly doesn't hurt, but it's not the be-all and end-all. In the immortal words of JLo, love don't cost a thing. You'll find that perfect production values won't always ensure you'll have a perfect stream. But if you do have the bucks to spend and have a big name fronting your stream, to get the most out of them, you need to build a relationship with them. 
Michael from Tiltify reckons it's important to find out as much as you can about the celebrities' habits and hobbies and use them to build a show around. We did a stream with Amelia Clark from Game of Thrones, and I had asked her and her team at various times, you know, what does she like to do? And she does a lot of fun things. She likes to sing. She does really funny accents. She likes to play like random games, like trivia games and things like that. She likes to try new things. So when she did a live stream, people were able to donate and suggest accents and things she should say in those accents. And that was fun. They obviously did Game of Thrones trivia. She did some karaoke singing. And because she was having fun and into it, that helped raise more money. I mean, who doesn't want to see Khaleesi try her hand at karaoke? But big names don't always mean big donations. They're definitely not necessary for a successful or impactful stream. There's a lot of room to get creative with things. We've seen people host talk shows in Animal Crossing, come up with exciting forfeits and spin live DJ sets. The possibilities are endless. Just make sure you don't get yourself banned from Twitch. Back to you, Will. Yeah, have you been looking at my notes? Thanks, Shay. See you next time. Player who has left again. We've offered a lot of practical advice in this show, and I hope it's opened your eyes to the opportunities available to you. Remember, it can be fun, too, and creative, as well as making economic sense. But as the organization Child's Play have proved, it can also do a lot of good. They were founded in 2003, and they funded the use of gaming technology in hospitals around the world, most recently in Kenya. And Abe Homer is one of many gaming technology specialists that Child's Play support through their fundraising. Based at Children's Hospital Colorado, he helps children maintain social and emotional connections while in hospital. As a gaming technology specialist, my role is to research, develop, and administer different gaming technologies. So that includes playing video games on traditional consoles like PS4, Xbox with kids, using virtual reality for procedure preps, using it instead of anesthesia or using it for pain management and that kind of stuff, as well as teaching kids how to use STEM technologies like 3D printing and robotics. Some of the kids teach me stuff every day, you know, some of them are using it at home and, and they're, they're pros and they teach me stuff. So it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship where we can teach each other things, which is great. And Abe learned very quickly the power that games can have in the hospital environment. I was super, super nervous, super new to the healthcare industry, new to this position. And I got a referral for this one patient who had been at the hospital for seven years at this point. And they essentially lived at the hospital. So I was called to try and see if I could use technology to help make their quality of life a little bit better. And this patient was only able to move their big toe. That's it. So I went in and we started talking. Both of us were a little apprehensive, but we started talking about video games. And from that moment on, we were the best of friends. I mean, the, talking about video games cut through everything. 
And from that moment on, I saw this patient every single day and worked with him every single day. I did a custom setup for him so he could actually use his big toe to have controller inputs while we played Xbox together. We did co-pilot where I would have half of the controller, he would control the other half, and we played through like four different games start to finish together. And he liked to call himself my technology guinea pig. He was game for anything. Put a VR headset on me, 3D print me. He was able to, to kind of travel to these other worlds via our video game time together. Unfortunately, he passed away this past August, but I was able to utilize that 3D technology as well to, to help his family after the fact. And he was actually the patient who gave me the idea to start trying to do that. So I really, really credit this patient with helping me start my program here. Abe's decision to use video games to reach out to those in need was inspired by tragedy in his own life. In my senior year of college, my mother was actually diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, and she didn't want to go to the hospital. So me and my older sister took on the responsibility of being her primary caregiver. And during that time, I was using video games myself as a coping mechanism, as a way to escape this terrible situation I was in. And I kind of had this light bulb moment. I was like, well, if it can help me during this terrible time, it must be helpful for other people. So I started kind of doing research, teaching myself how to develop my own content and stuff, and just, you know, seeing how these technologies and video games that people previously thought of as merely entertainment were actually really, really helpful. Maybe the only thing that was helpful for me in this situation. So. It's really personal for me when I can translate that to other people and, and help make their lives better as well. That drive many of us have towards a particular charity is often influenced by personal experience. Many run marathons to raise money in tribute to a family member or friend who's lost their life. The same is true in gaming. Online, gamers who've had similar experiences of loss can reach out to each other in solidarity and help fundraise for the same causes. Here's Kirsten from Child's Play. I completely have an appreciation for the relationship you build with someone, even through a screen and even through playing, even if you're not seeing their face, you know, you learn how to use Discord, we're playing the game, it's streaming, and how helpful people are and they want you to enjoy gaming. And I think that's the beauty of it, right? Everyone who's a true gamer, all you want is for other people to experience the joy that you've had. And I never knew that, like what that meant. And so for me, I have found such an appreciation for the community and feel like I'm a small part of it now, of the really good parts of gaming. And I do hope that through everything and the staying home quarantines, people recognize and realize gamers have been socializing this way for years and that it has been good. Why do people play games? We all have our own reasons, for fun, escape, for a challenge, and for many of us, for the sense of community many of them provide. Gamers are just as good at building friendships as they are at building recreations of Game of Thrones castles in Minecraft. And organizations like Child's Play excel at bringing these groups together and using their talents to make their campaigns even better. 
I hope we've convinced you to dip your toes into the gaming for good world and shown it's not as difficult to be a part of as many imagine. You're already halfway there if you're listening to this. You're a communicator, an enthusiast, a campaigner. You're passionate about your work, so why not bring those skills to a new arena and learn some new ones? Get involved, try some games, and most importantly, watch some streamers on Twitch. We'll include a useful list in our show notes of things you might want to try, including some practical advice that supports some of the ideas you've heard in this episode. You'll learn a lot in this new world, but people will also learn from you. Remember, this is a thriving community. We're going to be releasing extended interviews with some of the people we've heard from in this episode. Look out for those. And in our next episode, we'll be hearing more from different charities on how they've approached gaming for good. Some will be at the start of their journey, others more experienced. We'll be offering more stories that will inspire you and give you some tools to start or improve your gaming for good activities. This has been Gaming for Good with me, Will Bond. For more information about Gaming for Good and to hear from inspiring fundraising trailblazers, visit sfdc.co slash fundraising guide. This documentary has been brought to you by salesforce.org. It's a sounds fancy and fieldwork production. It's been written and presented by me, Will Bond and Shay Thompson, with research and additional writing by Curtis James, Alex Reese, Simon James and Chris Paling. Production support by Jim Stevenson. Music by Neil Hale and Simon James. Editing, production and mixing by Simon James. Mm -hmm.